I know I've shared part of my story about uh, Sarah before. Sarah was one of our 20 and 30-somethings in Denmark. She identified as an atheist or an agnostic, but she was coming to church because she liked our community and what our young adults were offering, and so she did everything with us even though she didn't believe in God. As she learned scripture and learned community and learned love, we went on a camping trip with the group to the island of Bornholm, outside off the coast of Denmark. We camped and rode our bikes, and one night she just experienced God's love for her and decided that she needed to be baptized. And she wanted to be baptized in the ocean, there on the beach with all her friends and community surrounding her. And so she came to me and said, I realize God loves me. I want to be baptized right here and now. And I said, that's great. No. Yeah, I know some of you are like, what? You said that? I did. Isn't that weird? Why would I say that? I feel terrible about it now. I said no. I said maybe it would be better if you shared this experience with the church back in Copenhagen and we could gather around the font and, and baptize you there and then everybody could see and experience this. And, and I thought that felt like the right thing to do, but afterwards I realized that, that I had taken something away from her. She grew up on the ocean. The ocean had nurtured her and raised her. She was from the, the shores of England and, and had, a, had grown up there, and her dad was from France, and so she had the beaches of France in her head, and she saw and experienced God there in that water that connected the whole earth, and, and I actually took it from her. It felt right at the time for the sake of church and good order. It feels totally wrong now for the sake of God's love and God's radical love. I love this story from Mark because Jesus is just blowing into the world and people's lives as the spirit-filled radical warrior of God. He got baptized and the spirit of God came down upon him and now his heart's broken for the broken world and for broken people and he's, he's there fighting on our behalf against Satan and evil and demons and all the worldly structures and powers that be that would keep people from experiencing God's radical love. He's fighting hate with love. At one point, he's in the church, and the leaders are, are watching him to make sure he doesn't break any church rules or church order. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm to save life or to kill? What's at stake is a man with a crippled hand trying to experience God's love. And so Jesus heals him. And what it does is it draws two opposing sides in the church that hate each other, the Herodians and the Pharisees, together. Normally they were trying to kill each other and get rid of each other. They conspire to get rid of Jesus because he's done this. And so we watch the world rise up against God's radical love and come together and try to put it down. I have to share that part of the story. We didn't read it. It was a couple chapters before because... Someone who isn't following God's laws, like the church thought Jesus, or the synagogue thought Jesus clearly wasn't, shouldn't be able to heal people. That person shouldn't be able to cast out demons because God's against them, and Jesus has been doing that. He's been casting out demons and unclean spirits and killing illness, or curing illnesses. People with leprosy and people who are paralyzed and people who are crippled, he says, get up and walk, your sins are forgiven. And they do, and everyone's shocked. 
You can imagine what happens when people find out that there's this man that can restore me to wholeness. There's this crowd of people following him everywhere. Sitting at his feet, hounding him at home, crushing him against the waters of the lake, trying to touch him and grab him and talk to him and have access to him. Imagine that happening. Imagine clamoring all at once to try to get up to a man that's here that can heal what's wrong with you immediately right now. Almost as if a first-come, first-serve kind of thing. You'd be climbing over the pews to get there. That's what's happening. And our text starts today with Jesus goes home. Have you ever thought of that? He had a home? That's kind of weird. We don't think about it. It's home as like a home base. The literal text is he went to a house. But it keeps saying that in Mark. And so there's this place that Jesus has that puts security around him and a space where he can be. But the crowd follows him home where he's giving radical grace, not just to everyone, but to anyone. Anyone who asks gets to receive God's radical love and healing, and he even gives it to people that don't ask. And then he forgives their sin, which in Mark it's this idea that if something's wrong with you like that, you're separated from God and God's not with you, and he restores that connection too. It's an important theme in Mark because this is God versus the devil, love versus not love, whatever that might be. This is Satan, the strong man of the earth. Who has taken what is God's? People. You. Those people in that story. This is Satan the strong man versus Jesus, love, power incarnate. Binding the strong man and taking humanity back for the sake of God. And there's a clear reaction to God's radical love as it's flowing through the crowds of people. You have the crowd that's experiencing it, but then you have the Pharisees and scribes, and you have Jesus' family. The Pharisees and scribes just say, he's got a demon. He must be doing this by the powers of evil. He's possessed. His family says he's out of his mind. The text says he's not in his right mind. Something's wrong with his mind. God's love can't be this free. It can't work like that. We know better. Besides... His family's thinking stuff like, this is the kind of behavior that's going to get you killed. They're legitimately worried. They go to the house to try to restrain him before the Pharisees and scribes can kill him. What's another word for restrain? Control, maybe? They go to try to control him. It's out of his mind. We've got to control him. So the family thinks he's out of control. The Pharisees are losing their control. But all of them move in and try to control Jesus somehow. And what they actually try to do is control God's love. Kind of reminds me of Sarah and my first story. How I feel in my heart that I probably took something of God's radical love away from her where she could see that everywhere and have the experience everywhere of God, not just in a church. I have this secret hope, and I'll address it, Sarah, if you're listening and watching by some random God thing, oh my goodness, I would be so happy to talk to you. I can talk to my international friends on Messenger and Facebook, and it's incredible. 
Jesus won't have it. They're essentially repeating the original sin of Adam and Eve. That's why we read that story. Adam and Eve just wanted to control God, to know what God knows and be able to do what God does and be in the world like God's in the world and take care of it themselves. Jesus is grieved at their hardness of heart, he says, that they're closed to God's work, that when Jesus brings God's love and power, they can only see demons, and so they live into their own selfishness and, and say, oh, I don't know if God's that loving. And somehow they're afraid. Christ's first sermon was the kingdom of God is here. And when he says kingdom of God, he means that God's bringing a whole new reality into the world, and it's a crazy sort of reality. An out-of-your-mind sort of reality that, that requires us to open our minds, open our hearts, and see God's work as a new thing, and maybe be a little out of our minds ourselves. That's always kind of hard to do. I'm a German kid from North Dakota. I understand what that feels like. For a preacher from North Dakota, being out of your mind in the pulpit means I say something from here every now and then, and then I go back to here. <laughs> My home church would say, he's crazy. I mean, it's, it's kind of easy to condemn the scribes and Pharisees as broken, and yet I see I've repeated their own sin in my ministry. It's easy to, account, to discount his family's concerns that, that his shame is going to become theirs and that he might get, get killed, but, but to do that sort of insulates me from what's really going on. Facing what's really going on here makes me face myself and look inside myself and take stock of where I miss or refuse to see God's radical love, how I never see it big enough. I mean, the radical love of the kingdom of God is at work, and when the God of love encounters creation, people, humanity, those who are different from us, those who disagree with us, those who are enemies, all the people we look out in the world and name they, them, he, she, refusing to say names and acknowledge life, you, me, all, God sees us and loves us including you. And suddenly when that happens, the labels and identities and divisions and, and things that we use to, they take on a whole new meaning. Sarah was an atheist. That's not her real name, by the way. I know your name if you're out there. Or an agnostic. Maybe in her heart, but to God, who was she? See, that's what starts to matter. Love claims all of you. You know, someone asked me one time if, if God cares about all those labels, those identities that we name and claim, the identities that are revolved around everything in our life, whether they be race or gender or sexual orientation or denomination or affiliation. Does God really care about those things that define and identify us or that we use to include and exclude or whatever? It was a legitimate question. What they were actually getting at was, isn't God's love so big and broad that God sees beyond those human things and has a larger, more eternal will to worry about, and so God doesn't care about those things? The answer they expected from me was to say, you're right, God doesn't care about those things. But my answer was really, I think that's not right. God does care. 
very deeply about all those things about you, your story, your history, your unique individual identity, the forces that have shaped you and formed you and broken you and blessed you, the way of you being human in God's world. God cares deeply and loves each and every one of you, not apart from your story, but precisely because of it. Differences and diversity included. That's what's happening in our text. People are mobbing Jesus because he's not a general person of love in the world. He's a specific, embodied person. And he's got a history, too, and a, and a formation and a family and a house where people know where to find him. A comfort place where he's living out God's calling. That's where the masses are seeking him to experience God claiming everything that's broken them and everything that's blessing them. And it's where his family knows where they can go find him and finally rein this guy in. Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And he says, really? Who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looks at everyone sitting around him. And he looks at all these people in the house and the mob trying to get at him. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother and my sister. And it must have sounded shocking not just to his family, but to all the people sitting around him who had been told they weren't children of God. This man claiming them as family and that somehow they were doing God's will, they're the ones considered outcast and possessed and broken and abandoned. It must have sounded just about as crazy as the group of disciples that Jesus called together to serve him. He gave every one of his 12 disciples the authority and power to cast out demons and bring in the kingdom of God in his name. And you know who they were? One of the commentators I read this week brought this up. Peter was a zealot. Peter believed that the kingdom of Israel should rise up violently and kill not only the Romans, but anyone that stood in their way to bring God's kingdom in. Matthew was a tax collector who worked hand-in-hand hand with the Romans, and that was considered unclean. For practical purpose, those two should be trying to kill each other. Then he had some poor fishermen that probably couldn't satisfy the law at all, and then he had Judas, who was a known dishonest, selfish man that Jesus knew would betray him. All disciples all called to follow, all called to learn and listen and, and be a part of their Lord's work in the world. Isn't that profound? And I'm tempted to come and say that that's what Jesus means when he says, those doing the will of God are my mother and brother and sisters. But I don't think that's it. The whole problem at the beginning was the leaders refused to see God's radical work God's radical love at work in the world. And so they refused to follow him and sit at his feet and listen to him. The ones Jesus is naming family are those who have followed him. But they followed him to experience God's radical love and then rest in it. And finally, that's what Jesus means by doing the will of God. Follow me. Hound me, bring me your desperate, broken hearts and let me have them sit at my feet. The kingdom of God is here for you. 
That's beautiful good news, and it turns out that that's a hard thing to believe. So hard, in fact, that finally Jesus has to live it out to the end and die on the cross because that's what radical love does. It gives everything that he is for you so that there would be no doubt in your head or heart about who God's family is. And who is God's family, dear friends? You are Jesus' mother and brother and sister, you who are following Jesus, sitting at Jesus' feet, and finally that's God's will not only for you but for everyone, and that is the message that we take into this world in Christ's name And I'm so glad to do it with you. Amen.